0: The men had gathered around in a pathetically jumbled circle upon the ice. They stood watching the stricken ship they had abandoned almost a month ago to the day. The mighty ship, once a state-of-the-art Three Master, had been crushed into a heap of splintered timber. Their breath smoking in the late spring Antarctic air, no one said a word. They just watched wincing with each new crack of the ship's hull as the mass of the encircling ice pack closed in compressing every last fiber of what was the last piece of permanent shelter for over a thousand miles. As the ship finally succumbed to the ravages of the pack and her broken mast slipped into the abyss, the ship's captain uttered three lamentable words. She's going boys. They were now alone on a pack of moving ice in the middle of the Weddell Sea with no one but themselves to rely on for rescue.
1: We had seen God in his splendors, heard the text that nature renders, we'd reached the naked soul of man. Ernest Shackleton, November 1915.
0: Virtuous Man, a podcast devoted to sharing the lives of men of history, fiction, and today, and the virtues they personify. Over the next five episodes, we'll take you on a journey to discover five of the crucial virtues of life through the man who demonstrated them, not just with words, but with action.
2: Welcome to Episode 4, The Leadership of Sir Ernest Shackleton, hosted by Jamie Adams. Readings from Shackleton's first-hand account, South, by John Gallagher.
0: A virtue is a behavior one conforms to in order to achieve a moral and ethically principled life through action. A virtuous man is one who is well aware of how he falls short, yet chooses not to allow his flaws to define him as he seeks to better himself. Such men show that it is possible to overcome the things that keep us from achieving our destinies. Though each man is flawed and imperfect. It is in the lives of flawed men that we see the possibility for virtue in our own lives.
2: This episode's virtue is leadership. Leadership is the act of taking charge of a group of individuals, considering the group dynamics, and executing an objective by overcoming whatever adversities stand in your way. A great leader is one who manages the group of people in front of him, never making excuses or scapegoating the group's weak links, and always taking responsibility for the defeats, while giving praise to the group in victory. A group can have all the skills in the world, but if they lack an effective leader, the group is merely individuals with standalone skills, not a diversely gifted, cohesive unit. The virtue of leadership is perhaps no better exemplified than in the example of Sir Ernest Shackleton and his infamous 1914 expedition to the Antarctic. As we explore the expedition, we will see Shackleton's incredible ability to place the responsibility of his crew's lives squarely on his shoulders, and not break under the immense weight of that burden.
0: Ernest Shackleton was born in County Kildare, Ireland in 1874, the second of ten children. At the age of six, he moved to London with his family as his father tried to find work as a newly qualified doctor. The other reason for the move was rising tensions of Irish nationalism. The Shackletons were of English ancestry, and after the assassination of Lord Frederick Cavendish, British Chief Secretary of Ireland, there was real fear of further violence. From his early days in school, Ernest was an avid reader. This sparked his passion for adventure that would define his life. Attending Dulwich College in his teens, he became bored by his studies, the mark of many an explorer, and sought to break out of the classroom environment and pursue the enchanted world of the 1800s. He broke away from the classroom at age 16 and set sail aboard a merchant vessel, the Houghton Tar. Spending four years at sea, he had his baptism to the skill of sailing, learning not just the trades, but people skills as well. His journeys took him to the four corners of the world where he met all kinds of people, tastes, temperaments and skill sets. These experiences would benefit Shackleton as he worked his way up the ranks. Becoming a second mate in 1894, four years later he was awarded his Master Marine Certificate, qualifying him to captain any British ship in the world. Through the connections gained on his travels and during his deployment aboard a Royal Navy vessel during the Boer War in 1900, he met a man by the name of Cedric Longstaff. Cedric's father, Llewellyn, was the main financial backer of the National Antarctic Expedition. He managed to impress in an interview with Llewellyn and he was named third officer of the Discovery and its expedition to the Antarctic in 1901. The expedition leader Robert Falcon Scott led his men from Dundee in Scotland to McMurdo Sound and the crew were immediately pitted against the harsh climate and environment. As the men set up depots of supplies along the route from McMurdo to the South Pole, the sledging dogs became ill. Shackleton himself developed scurvy, and the very survival of the crew became a major doubt as they quickly ran out of food. They turned around on December 31, 1902, at the latitude of 82 degrees 17 minutes south, some 480 miles from the pole. All of the men were exhausted to the point of near death upon their return to base, which took over a month. They had travelled 960 miles in 93 days, Arriving back at the discovery, Shackleton was sent home on a relief ship, due to his terribly ill state. The experience had sharpened Shackleton's intuition on the perils of Antarctic exploration, and this would prove invaluable during his own expedition a decade later. On April 9, 1904, he married Emily Dorman, the daughter of a wealthy lawyer, with whom he had three children. Over the next three years, he spent his time trying out a number of different endeavours, from consulting the Royal Navy to secretaryship at the Royal Scottish Geographical Society and even a run in politics in the 1906 general election as a candidate for the Liberal Unionist Party. Soon after, he turned his attention again to the Antarctic and presented his plan to the Royal Geographical Society in February of 1907. The aim of the Nimrod expedition was to make it to both the geographical South Pole and the South Magnetic Pole where the geographical field lines are directed vertically upward. The Nimrod expedition arrived at McMurdo Sound on January 29, 1908, and even though conditions were rough, Shackleton's ability to connect personally with each man kept the crew in high spirits. After landing, a team of six made the very first ascent of the 13,200-foot Mount Erebus. The expedition dug in for the winter, and two separate parties set out in September, one for the True Pole and the other for the Magnetic Pole. Due to the shifting of this Magnetic Pole by up to 8 miles per year, the modern day location sits outside the Antarctic continent. But in Shackleton's day, it sat about 600 miles closer to the True Pole. By January 15, 1909, the crew led by Edworth David became the first to reach the Magnetic South Pole. David's crew reached base again on February 5th, he claimed on his return that if he would have had sledging dogs, the trip would have taken half the time. This piece of advice would help Shackleton on subsequent expeditions. The pole team consisting of Shackleton, Frank Wilde, Eric Marshall and Jameson Adams left at the end of October 1908. Having brought ponies to haul the cache of supplies, they soon found they were more trouble than they were worth. In fact, three were shot and consumed in route to the pole, after they became too weak to continue in the harsh elements. The men had made it to within 97 miles of the pole on January 9, 1909, but in the face of relentless blizzards, snow blindness, frostbite and a quickly disappearing food supply, Shackleton made the hard decision to turn around at 88 degrees, 23 minutes south. This was a prelude, a taste of the care Shackleton would have for his men on his next even more infamous expedition. Many a leader would have trudged on, neglecting the danger he was exposing his man to with each passing step. Yet to Shackleton the Pole was not worth losing his life or the lives of his men. By contrast, Scott's successful yet fateful run at the Pole in the 1912 Terra Nova expedition did not use the same measure of discipline. Having been beaten to the Pole by Norwegian Roald Amundsen by just 34 days, Scott's entire team perished on the return journey, having run out of food, stuck by bad weather, just 11 miles from their next depot. A Shackleton wrote to his wife after turning around from the pole,
1: I thought, dear, that you would rather have a live ass than a dead lion.
0: Using a sail to harness the wind on their return journey, they made a remarkable 29 miles a day. Successfully using their food depots, their food vastly improved along with their general comfort. They made it back to the Nimrod having traveled a grand total of 1,700 miles. Shackleton was knighted upon his return to England and received numerous honors both naval and civilian. His stock in England had swollen so much that Roald Amundsen, the first to reach the Pole, wrote, The English nation has by this deed of Shackleton's won a victory that can never be surpassed. He spent the next few years on tour giving lectures on his experiences in the Antarctic and biding his time before his next great trip south. That expedition would be the one that would cement Shackleton's name in the history books. Not for its success, but for his crew's will to simply survive and for his own unbelievable leadership throughout. Having received word that Almondson and then Scott had reached the pole in 1912, he turned all of his energy towards a crossing of the entire Antarctic continent. Christened the Imperial Transantarctic Expedition, Shackleton knew this would take a crew unlike any other. His remarkable intuition when picking men for his expeditions rarely turned up a dud. Able seamen were recruited in Shackleton's typical swashbuckling fashion. Legend has it, his advertisement in a London newspaper read,
1: Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful, honour and recognition in event of success.
0: Nowadays, this would surely be laughed at, but over 5,000 people responded to the ad, and several were chosen to fill out the roster of the Endurance. He chose Englishman Frank Wilde, an Antarctic veteran of three previous expeditions, as his second-in-command. Frank Worsley, a New Zealander with remarkable navigation skills, was chosen as captain. Fellow Kiwi Lionel Greenstreet was chosen as first officer. His adaptability, sense of humour and ability to pull together men under extreme hardship would prove invaluable. Scotsman Harry Chippy McNeish, ship's carpenter, would also prove essential to their survival later on. McNeish brought with him the most important member of the crew, his male tomcat, Mrs Chippy. The expedition plan was to use two ships, one setting sail from England and docking on the Weddell Sea side of the Antarctic continent, and the other setting out from Tasmania and docking on the Ross Sea end. Each party would send a team south to the Pole, Shackleton's Weddell Sea team being the prioritised group since they would be travelling over on terrain. The Ross Sea team would cash depots of supplies following Scott's successful 1912 route and then wait Shackleton's team to assist them to the Ross Sea base. Shackleton's procurement of financial backing for the expedition was nothing short of incredible. He secured £24,000, some $3.7 million US today, from Scottish entrepreneur Sir James Caird. Support from businessman Dudley Docker to purchase the Norwegian ship he would name the Endurance and funding from Dane Janet Stancombe wills First Lady Mayor of Kent, to outfit the Endurance. Wanting to show his appreciation, he famously named the ship's three lifeboats, the James Caird, the Dudley Docker, and the Stankham-Wills. The hundred sledging dogs used for the expedition were purchased with the help of the public schools of Scotland and England, and Shackleton, knowing the importance of public opinion concerning the expedition, named a dog after each school. As the Endurance set out from London and sailed down the Thames on August 1, 1914, Europe was teetering on the brink of war. After setting out, Shackleton brought the ship ashore to secure the morning newspaper. A general call for mobilization was on the front page, and he immediately went back aboard the Endurance to speak to his men. He informed them that, if they all agreed, it was his intention to send a telegram to London offering the ship and all of its cargo to the war effort, and to abandon the expedition entirely. All hands agreed. Their only stipulation was that, in the event war was declared, the group would remain a single unit. As Shackleton put it,
1: there were enough trained and experienced men amongst us to man a destroyer.
0: Within hours of his outgoing telegram, Shackleton received a one word reply, proceed. Two hours later, he received a lengthier telegram from then first Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill, thanking him for their offer and that the British authorities fully sanctioned their expedition and believed it should go on. Though the two did not always see eye to eye, still it is clear that Shackleton's commitment to his country and willingness to abandon an expedition he had spent the last year and a half planning had garnered a deep respect from Churchill. On August 4th, war was declared just hours after Shackleton had been handed an Union Jack to fly aboard the Endurance by the King himself. The Endurance sailed to Buenos Aires, then set sail for the whaling station of South Georgia Island on October 26, 1914. As they left Argentina, they received their last updates on the war. The Russians were advancing from the east, and most thought the war would be over in six months' time. Consulting the whalers on South Georgia, it was apparent that the ice pack was particularly tricky this season, thick and unusually far north. On December 5th they set out for the Weddell Sea, leaving the last vestige of civilization behind them. Although they were going headlong into the unknown, their voyage uncertain and their return even more uncertain, their spirits were quite high. Despite their initial optimism though, their first setback wasn't long in coming. Just north of Sanders Island at 57 degrees 26 minutes south, they encountered heavy ice pack. Though he was disheartened to see ice this far north, Shackleton didn't panic. After a night of dodging the pack and searching for an opening, the ship set sail once more. At 59 degrees 46 minutes south, the endurance entered another pack. The ship continued to press south, searching for each new lead in the ice, under the power of the steam engine but it was now at a pathetically slow rate. Yet Shackleton kept morale high, even joking with the crew about the penguins who were following them.
1: One of the standing jokes was that all the Adelies on the floe seemed to know Clark, and when he was at the wheel, rushed along as fast as their legs could carry them, yelling out, Clark, Clark, and apparently very indignant and perturbed that he never waited for them or even answered them.
0: During the trudge through the ice pack, Shackleton allowed the men to rename the sledging dogs and names such as Samson, Slobbers and Painful were given. Little things such as these would prove crucial in keeping the men together and working towards a common goal during the innumerable challenges of the coming months. At midnight on Christmas Day, Grog was served on deck and the engine expert Ord Lees decorated the ward room and had a present wrapped up for each crew member. All sat down to a generous Christmas feast in the evening, and the crew joined in a sing-song as Hussie played a one-stringed violin he had made himself. And so it was, even in the throes of the Sea Pack, Shackleton kept the morale of the crew high, using this most treasured of holidays. At 11pm on December 29th, they crossed the Antarctic Circle at 66 degrees 30 minutes south. They rang in the New Year two days later, celebrating having travelled some 480 miles through the ice pack in the last three weeks. On January 10th, they gained the first sighting of the continent, as they struggled slowly towards the Coats land. They began to move parallel with the Brunt Ice Shelf, looking for a path through towards land but by the morning of January 19th, their situation had become increasingly worrisome. The endurance was unable to move as ice had surrounded the ship during the night and there was no sight of open water in any direction. Land was just 16 miles to the east and south, but they would spend the next few weeks simply looking for a new lead and keeping the steam engine primed in case one presented itself. The men were ordered to the ice to attempt to cut leads for themselves, but it was a fruitless affair. A dire sight was witnessed on February 17th as the sun sunk below the horizon for the first time of their journey. Shackleton's thoughts now turned to what was becoming more and more inevitable with each passing day. They would have to winter on the ice. Again panic was not in Shackleton's mind. He immediately put an emphasis on gathering seal meat. On February 22nd the ship reached the 77th parallel. This would be the farthest south the men would reach. With the pack now encircling the ship, they were merely passengers at the will of the ice as it now circled counterclockwise and carried them west-northwest. Shackleton reluctantly ceased the ship's daily routine, and the endurance became a winter station in the middle of an ice pack. Morale was improved with the delivery of a litter of puppies, and the dog kennels were moved from the ship onto the ice, to the relief of both dog and man alike. Games of hockey and soccer were organised on the floe, and the recreation break from the hopeless work on deck the past month further improved morale. The winter months of March, April and May were spent building their depot of meat and blubber, reinforcing the shelters on the ship and committing to various scientific and photographic duties. Many of the dogs began to die due to various illnesses beyond the crew's ability to mend. On May 1st, the sun vanished below the horizon and the men would not see daylight again for four cold, dark months. Shackleton's mindset during these long months was one of letting go of what he could not control and focusing
1: on what he could. The movement of the flow was beyond all human control and there was nothing to be gained by allowing one's mind to struggle with the problems of the future, though it was hard to avoid anxiety at times.
0: Midwinter's Day was celebrated on June 22nd, and all hands gathered at the Ritz, the name given to the Endurance, for a feast. Speeches, songs and long toasts filled out the evening, and after midnight the crew sang God Save the King. July was mostly uneventful, save for the frequent blizzards and bone-chilling cold as temperatures now reached negative 34 Fahrenheit. Then on August 1st, the flow that had provided such safety, even in their dire situation, suddenly broke up. All hands, men and dogs rushed aboard the ship. The remainder of the month was uneventful, but on the 24th an increasing pressure began to build and put serious stress on the Endurance. Her timbers began to creak and snap, and the ominous sounds made Shackleton begin to ponder what an escape by foot over the ice might look like. His mind was always at work, gears turning, contemplating new plans and adapting to each new set of unfortunate circumstances. On September 2nd, the pressure made the ship literally jump into the air and settle on its beam, commented Pierce Blackborough, a stowaway who had become the ship's steward. The chaotic fields of ice began to relentlessly squeeze the endurance from all four sides. On the 24th, the endurance began to leak and pumps were deployed. On the 27th at 5 p.m., Shackleton made what was both the most difficult and the most obvious call of the entire expedition to this point. Abandon ship. Shackleton lamented.
1: After long months of ceaseless anxiety and strain, the end of the endurance has come. It's hard to write what I feel.
0: For the next few weeks, the men would make pilgrimages back and forth from the Endurance, gathering belongings and mementos. Shackleton tore the flyleaf from the Bible Queen Alexandria had signed and given him, along with the page from the book of Job containing this. Out of whose womb came the ice, and the hoary frost of heaven? Who hath gendered it? The waters are hid as with a stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. The crew made their new residence atop a large old floe one and a half miles from the stricken ship, naming it Ocean Camp. And on November 21st, the long-suffering ship gave its final series of creaks and groans as it finally gave up the fight and slipped under the ice. Strangely, it came almost as a relief to Shackleton. The task ahead of them was now confirmed. If they were to get themselves out of their predicament, it would be on foot over the ice and then, God willing, over the sea on the lifeboats to land. A month later Shackleton ordered the men to begin the march towards open water, but the going was pitifully slow and took far too much out of dog and man, and the march was abandoned six days later. Hence the aptly named Patience Camp was set up. Strong winds blew them back across the Antarctic Circle on January 21st. February and March were frustrating and rations had to be cut as the presence of seals and penguins dried up considerably. By the end of March blubber was a regular item on the menu but incredibly Shackleton managed to keep the men in good spirits shown by the comments of one crew member.
1: It will do us all good to be hungry like this for we will appreciate so much more the good things when we get home.
0: Somehow, most, if not all, still had the conviction that they would indeed make it home. March 30th, though, was a sober day. The remainder of the dogs had to be shot, as they just didn't have enough food to feed both man and beast, and there was no need for unnecessary suffering. The next day, the ice floe under Patience Camp split in two, and the three lifeboats, which had become their makeshift homes, drew away from the men on the opposite side of the crack, They were eventually retrieved at great effort. By mid-April the men were simply waiting for a lead or crack in the ice to open. Many false leads teased them throughout the latter half of the month but on the 9th Shackleton ordered the three lifeboats to sea and for the first time in almost 16 months they were in open water. On the 12th about 5 a.m the sky began to brighten and the sun broke above the horizon in its glorious splendor. The change in mood was palpable, and the men began to row with renewed vigor. But when Frank Worsley took a sextant reading that night, he found they had drifted 22 miles further south of land than when they had launched the boats three days prior. A current had caught them, and they had been swept to the east. The news was devastating to the men, and some simply refused to believe it. The men spent the next six days struggling through the rough seas of the Weddell Sea, aiming for the northernmost tip of the Antarctic Peninsula. Their destination was Elephant Island, named for its remarkable likeness to an elephant's head from above. They were tormented by thirst, seasickness, were constantly soaked to the skin, and needed to urinate constantly due to the extreme cold. Their bodies needed to filter more blood than normal as blood rushed to vital organs to warm them leading to increased kidney function. On the seventh day at sunrise, the peaks of Clarence Island were visible. And then there it was, Elephant Island, no more than 30 miles north. Shackleton shouted heaps of praise to Frank Worsley for his skillful navigation. Worsley simply looked away, embarrassed, but chuffed to the bone to receive such admiration from the boss. Shackleton knew that without Worsley and his sextant, the three lifeboats would still be afloat somewhere in the vast expanse of the Weddell Sea. He and every man owed their hopes of survival to Worsley. It took another day and a half, but they finally landed on the east tip of Elephant Island. Earlier in the expedition, upon finding the stowaway Pierce Blackborough, Shackleton had made the promise that if they ran out of food, he would be the first they would eat. With Blackborough now struggling from devastating frostbite, Shackleton had made a new promise, that he would be the first to step on shore. Little things such as these were ways in which the brilliant Irishman gave little glimmers of hope to the men under his care. Their feet touched land again for the first time since their departure from South Georgia 497 days earlier. They may have been on a god-forsaken spit of land with glacial cliffs all around and fully exposed to the elements, but they were on solid, unsinkable, immovable, blessed land. Shackleton ordered camp set up immediately and stores were brought from the three lifeboats. They now had fresh water running practically into their mouths from the melting glaciers above and enough seal meat from the many seals on shore to fill every belly. Yet, the ferocity of the storms that constantly battered Elephant Island became the routine, and the men, unable to come out of their tents much, became demoralized once again. It was then that Shackleton knew he must make a plan for their ultimate rescue, rather than dwelling on their victory in making it this far. Meeting with the two Franks, Worsley and Wilde, he discussed a plan to make for South Georgia Island once they had recovered enough strength. This had to be done before winter began, which incredibly was only two months away. He knew asking the men to weather another long Antarctic winter would be asking too much. A six-man team was chosen for the trip to South Georgia. Along with Shackleton were Worsley, whose navigation thus far had been unmatched. Second Officer Crean, Carpenter McNeish, and able seaman Timothy McCarthy and John Vincent. Of the three lifeboats the 20-foot James Caird was chosen for the trip. They loaded food, stoves, fuel, navigation tools, and 250 pounds of ice into the boat for drinking water. Thus on the 23rd of April, the six companions set out for South Georgia, which held the key to their and the rest of the men's salvation. Shackleton left Frank Wilde as second-in-command in in charge of the 22 remaining men on Elephant Island, the only man he trusted to keep the sorry band in order and alive. During the next 16 days, the men would battle through 800 miles of the tumultuous seas of the South Atlantic. Shackleton's own words give a glimpse of what the trip was like.
1: So small was our boat and so great were the seas that often our sails flapped idly in the calm between the crests of two waves. Then we would climb the next slope and catch the full fury of the gale, where the wool-like whiteness of the breaking water surged around us.
0: In keeping with the theme of the trip though, the man kept their spirits high by employing the act of dark humour.
1: Mon's sense of humour is always more easily stirred by the petty misfortunes of his neighbours, and I shall never forget Worldsley's efforts on one occasion to place the hot aluminum stand on top of the primus stove. With his frostbitten fingers he picked it up, dropped it, picked it up again, and toyed with it gingerly as though it were some fragile article of ladies' wear. We laughed or rather gurgled with laughter.
0: They took turns mounting the rudder, bailing water from the boat, tending the sail, and catching a few moments of shut eye below the rigged deck McNeish had made. Jacqueline made a point to give careful attention to meal times, And they all ate good portions despite what was going on all around them. This kept bodies strong, minds awake, and most importantly kept morale from dropping. They also allowed the men to share a camaraderie within the ordeal they were all witness to and a part of, and this bond would see them through. On the tenth day the journey was beginning to take its toll, Frank Worsley, after a lengthy turn at the tiller, could no longer straighten his body. He was so beset with cramp, but after the men massaged the poor man, his muscles gave way and they were able to get him into a sleeping bag for a bit of rest. Thus was the level of devotion each man now had to his fellow crewmen. On the twelfth day, they realized that after the last of their 250 pounds of ice had been melted and consumed, the beaker of water they had stowed had been invaded by seawater. Drinking this brackish water now only increased their thirst. Their situation was now on the very edge. Their mouths became dry and their tongues swollen. They needed a sight of land and fast. May 8th brought a sliver of hope. At 10 in the morning, a piece of kelp passed the boat. An hour later, they spotted two birds on the water. Then, just after noon, Timothy McCarthy caught a brief glimpse of the Black Cliffs of South Georgia. Their goal was in sight at last. The men had achieved what is still considered one of the greatest open boat voyages in maritime history. A feat that had never been done before and has never been done since. They now sat on the western shore of South Georgia. The problem was the Stromness whaling station, the nearest place of habitation on the island, was on the east side. Though it was a mere 20 miles as the crow flies, this was over completely uncharted, heavily glaciated mountain terrain, with peaks as high as 4,500 feet. They knew the final leg of the journey was still ahead of them. It was 150 miles to Stromness by sea, something they had neither the will nor the appetite to tackle. And so it was on foot they would finish the adventure. After running the James Caird ashore across from the cove, they had docked in. They rested for a few days, and then on May 19th, Shackleton, Worsley, and Crean set off for Stromness. The three other men remained in King Haakon Bay. Shackleton brought food for three days, a 15-meter rope, a Primus stove, a makeshift ice axe. And screwed screws into their boots as makeshift crampons. They possessed two compasses, binoculars, a chronometer, and a map of the island from a 1911 German expedition. They battled through knee-deep snow to reach the ridgeback, attempting rappels down its two southernmost coals before deciding, as darkness was setting in, to use their coiled rope to make a sled and to down the northernmost coal. They made it down to the large glacier below, making good progress towards the sea, but in their exhaustion, confusion and optimism, they mistook Fortuna Bay for Stromness Bay. Realising their mistake, they had to ascend again up the glacier and through the now called Breakwind Gap. It was here that they heard a very familiar sound they knew could only be man-made. As they started down the path that led to the bay and safety at last, Shackleton thought he heard the sound of a steam whistle far in the distance. He knew the men at the whaling station were awoken at 6.30am. He told Worsley and Crean, and the three excitedly ate breakfast, awaiting the 7am whistle that signalled the start of the workday. As the minutes ticked by, they were perfectly silent, watching the chronometer. Then, at 7am on the dot, a whistle blast sounded. It was the first sound from the outside world they had heard since December of 1914. There were no shouts, no jumping, and they didn't break into song. They simply looked at each other with a growing smile and shook hands without speaking. They were so close now. Three hours later, after a dangerously steep descent, The Stromness whaling station sat a mere 2,500 feet below them. They stood there for a second, just taking in something they hadn't seen in a very long time – strangers. From their vantage point, they could see a ship entering the harbor, its crew rushing about the deck, preparing to bring her to dock. They walked into the whaling station looking like something out of a horror novel. In Worsley's words, they looked like a terrible trio of scarecrows. Their hair was down to their shoulders, their beard matted with smoke from the blubber stove. They hadn't bathed in over a year, and their clothes were literally falling apart. When they were met by a couple of workmen, Shackleton asked in his hoarse voice,
1: Would you please take us to Anton Anderson?
0: Anderson had left his head post at Stromness, and the workmen informed him that Thoralf Sorrel was now in charge. A man Shackleton knew well. Workmen lined the hundred yard route to Sorrel's house, having left their positions on the docks to catch a glimpse of these strange men who had just come out of the mountains. When Sorrel answered the door, he didn't recognize them. When asked, Shackleton replied,
1: My name is Shackleton.
0: Sorrel, having thought long ago that his friend had been lost with all hands in the Weddell Sea, welcomed him in. It was May 20th, 1916. After accepting the much-needed hospitality of the Norwegian soul, Shackleton arranged for Worsley to go with a relief ship to pick up McNeish, McCarthy and Vincent on the opposite end of the island. Shackleton said later of the arduous journey both to and across South Georgia.
1: When I look back on those days, I have no doubt that Providence guided us, not only across those snow fields, but across the strong white sea that separated Elephant Island and South Georgia. I know that during that long and racking march of 36 hours over the unnamed mountains and glaciers of South Georgia, it seemed to me often that we were four, not three. Afterwards, Worsley said to me, "'Boss, I had a curious feeling on the march "'that there was another person with us. Crane confessed to the same idea. A record of our journey would be incomplete without a reference to a subject very near to our hearts.
0: Of course, a large burden still hung over Shackleton. The rescue of the 22 men still on Elephant Island, 800 miles to the southwest with winter fast approaching. On May 22nd, Shackleton departed on the Southern Sky Whaling ship, but was frustratingly stopped a hundred miles from Elephant Island by his nemesis, the ICE. Returning to South Georgia, Shackleton then had to wait two and a half weeks until he could secure the loan of the Uruguayan schooner, the Instituto del Pesca. But again on June 10th, he was forced back by the ICE within sight of the island. Finally with the help of the Chilean government, Shackleton, Worsley and Crean, aboard the Yelcho steamer, reached Elephant Island, and secured the rescue of the entire rest of the crew. They had spent four and a half months on the island, and in the words of Wilde,
1: I felt jolly near blubbering for a bit, and could not speak for several minutes.
0: During the long wait for Shackleton's return, the men had suffered immensely. Many were frostbitten, one man had been struck with a heart attack, and they all struggled to deal with acute depression. But their will to stay alive could not be broken, and as Shackleton climbed down the ladder of the Yelcho into a lifeboat, one man saw him and shouted, Thank God the boss is safe. It was almost as though they considered his well-being above their own. Blackborough, who could no longer walk due to frostbite, was lifted in a sleeping bag and sat upon a rock overlooking the shore so he could take in this glorious sight. As Shackleton approached shore, he met eyes with Wilde and asked, Are you all well? Wilde replied, All safe, all well. And a smile lit up Shackleton's face as he muttered to himself, Thank God. After landing in Chile with his crew, Shackleton set out for New Zealand and then boarded a ship to rescue the members of the McMurdo Bay half of the Imperial Transantarctic Expedition, who were incredibly stuck in the bay after being blown from their anchor. Tragically, three members of this crew had died, including the commander, Aeneas McIntosh. After returning to the British mainland, the men of the Endurance found an even more troubled continent than the one they had just left. Europe was entrenched in World War I, and many of the surviving members of the expedition immediately enlisted and went to fight at the front. Many never returned. Shackleton was dispatched as a Major and served in North Russia during the Russian Civil War in 1918, fighting Bolshevik forces in vain who took over the country in 1919. He spent the next few years gathering funds and men for one more expedition to the Antarctic. And on the 24th of September 1921 left England once more. Although many of the survivors of the Endurance had not yet been paid in full, several signed up with the boss for one last hurrah. But upon arrival in Brazil Shackleton suffered a suspected heart attack. He was steadfast to continue though and traveled to South Georgia on January 4th 1922. Then in the early hours of the morning He suffered another heart attack and died on the island he had so brilliantly crossed five years prior. A telegram was received from his wife requesting he be buried on South Georgia, and this was granted. Macklin, Surgeon on the Endurance and present at Shackleton's death, wrote, I think this is as the boss would have had it himself, standing lonely in an island far from civilization, surrounded by stormy tempestuous seas and in the vicinity of one of his greatest exploits. Just how did these 28 men survive such a perilous journey? You could say that men were just tougher back then, This is, of course, true, but the true answer lies in the leadership they were under throughout their ordeal. Shackleton was blessed with an incredible gift of man management. He knew how to pick men for a task, he knew how to use their strengths to the fullest, and he knew how to adjust for their weaknesses. He was a master at sensing a dip in morale, and he had the good humor to lift his men out of it. He kept troublemakers close to his side and he was willing to put up with their antics for the good of the crew. His ability to employ the men of the expedition to complete daily tasks, even when all seemed lost, is incredible. Finally, his greatest qualities were perhaps these. His greatest priority was the well-being and safety of his men, and he would never think of asking them to do something he was unwilling to do himself. As the geologist and Antarctic explorer Sir Raymond Priestley said, For scientific leadership, give me Scott. For swift and efficient travel, Amundsen. But when you are in a hopeless situation, when there seems no way out, get down on your knees and pray for Shackleton.
2: This episode of Virtuous Men was written and recorded by Jamie Adams and edited by Scott Einig. Quotations from Shackleton were taken from his first-hand account, South. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating and leave a review in the comments section. And don't forget to check out more Virtuous Men on our Instagram page at virtuous underscore men and give us a follow. Tune in next time for Episode 5, where we discover the innovation of George Washington Carver with special guest Gary R. Kremer of the State Historical Society of Missouri.